Take it away, Bex. No, you're doing the intro. Oh, I like? Yeah. Oh, oh, shit. And then I'll go into the first headline uh, <laughs> <laughs> every time. Every time. <laughs> Kia ora, everyone, and welcome to Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast. Hey, Bex. Kia ora. Well done, Mike, on saying Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast. Yeah, take six. It's a real achievement. Yeah. So today on the show we have Peter Wilson, who is a secretary for the DPRK, which is a society that advocates for North Korea. And we're going to get into that a bit later on, but first some headlines. Let's start with a local headline from New Zealand. Mike, how would you feel about getting a jab with your next burger? I'm super keen. <laughs> Why not? May as well get two burgs two with burgs. one shot. Two, two burgers, one... Two burgs, one Stone. Kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Wait, two, no. To kill two birds. Two eat bur- two birds with one <laughs> shot. Kill two burgers with one shot. Gotcha. Got it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a cool new initiative that's come up. Well, I think it's pretty cool anyway. Where the government is off- wanting to offer a vaccine to people who are getting fast food. Basically, there will be mobile vaccination centres at drive-throughs for anyone wanting a vaccine with their burger. KFC has already shown interest in helping out the government with this new endeavour, but we're yet to see the jabs turn up when we buy our fried chicken. Wait, what about for us vegetarians? Yeah, when you go and get your... My tofu. Tofu burger. <laughs> right. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Just as a really random aside, yeah. can vegetarians eat the chips from KFC? Do they have, like, chicken in this? Thing? Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. Actually, that's a good question. I know a lot of vegetarians are really careful with fast food because they cook things in the same... Oh, the same like, fry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. they don't care. They might not. Mm. For me, on the other hand, I'm I fine. Oh, my God, I don't care. <laughs> so for those overseas, by the way, New Zealand is more or less wanting to have 90% of the population vaccinated, which is a really, really lofty goal that no other country has achieved so far. So these kind of efforts and endeavors are just trying to push that number up yeah i think they're basically i mean so there was a they've started out with like buses and stuff which they're heading around different parts of the country um Mm. different parts of auckland in particular and it's just another sort of initiative to try and get you know shots in arms sort of things shot bro (laughs) sorry yeah (laughs) that's an advertising campaign in new zealand's yeah i don't know whatever um let's move on election time election time in Canada and Germany has just happened over the last week. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he's hanging on to what seems like another victory. So um, the election was held two weeks earlier than what was anticipated because he wanted to get a fresh mandate to start to basically pass some new COVID measures. Um, that didn't entirely backfire, he wanted more of a mandate. He didn't come through and he didn't win a majority of, of the uh, the votes in order to sort of make a government, but he will have to um, make form a government with another partner. So, I mean, he's still in power, essentially. Um, and Bex, a couple of podcasts ago, was it last week or it the week before? It was last week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were talking about, like, breathing deeply or something. Something... I may recall such Awful. a thing. Yeah. So that was the People's the People's Party of Canada. And they were obviously in the election that's just been held. Yes. Do, you, do you know how much they got? I'm dying to know. Please tell me they got over 5%. Oh, 
Ah, oh, so close. Really? Yeah, 4.95%. No. Oh, my God. That's so close. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Also so, mildly concerning, but very, amazing. Yeah, very concerning. So, they, the guy was like, so what you said is that they a plant, platform of like anti-vax, anti-science. Like they managed, Semen retention. Yes. They managed <laughs> to get 4.95%. Right. So, they did all right in the end. Um, and in Germany, elections, elections were a lot closer, but it seems as though the Social Democratic Party or CDP of Germany, has just edged out the Christian Democratic Union, which was Angela Merkel's party. But the parties are in negotiations to figure out how the next government will be formed. Um, it seems as though the SDP will ally with the Greens, and that'll make the new government. So it's kind of a weird um, and kind of, I don't want special, it's noteworthy, this, this election, because Angela Merkel just spent 16 years as chancellor. Um, so she's been around for mm. years. And so basically there was a lot of toing and froing between the sort of all the major candidates and all the, the leaders of those parties. And, um, it, uh, turnout was quite low. I think the S sort of the SDP, they only came in with like 25, 26%. Mm. So it's super low, mm. but they'll have a new chancellor, which is pretty cool. Cool. Spicy times. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite headlines for this week um, beer urine. Cool. So a hiker on a journey to Canada has been charged with starting the Fawn Fire in California that spread last week. It was pretty massive, eh? It consumed over 8,500 acres and destroyed around 185 structures, including homes. How many How many hectares is I have that? no idea. I, don't, I can't do the acre but it's thing. It's a, a lot. lot. It is a lot. Okay. So apparently Mike beer urine is to blame. Okay. Did you see the story, by the way? No, I didn't. Yeah, I don't know where I get these things from. Yeah. But anyway, so the thirsty walker found what she believed to be a puddle of water in a dry creek bed, but soon realized it was con- it contained beer urine. So she states that she was unsuccessful with her attempt to filter out the urine with a tea bag, so then attempted to make a fire to boil the substance. Filter with a tea bag. Yeah, interesting. I don't know. <laughs> <So> anyway, <laughs> the hiker states it was too wet for the fire to start. And then she drank the urine water anyway before continuing on her journey. But unfortunately, she's been charged with arson during a state of emergency. And now the former yoga teacher faces up to nine years in prison. So a word of warning to anyone trying to filter beer urine for water this summer. It is highly flammable. So what happens? She she, she grabs yeah. the thing, mm, put it in like mm, a container, mm. lit a fire, tried to boil off the stuff... And then what? Didn't put up the fire. She says that the fire never started. However, clearly a fire was started. Eh? How does that work? Yeah, she says it was too wet. So, so she's actually no... pleaded not guilty. I was reading today. So I didn't know that beer urine can conspani- uh, spontaneously combust. Is that a thing? I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe I think that... it's her memory that's combusted. The sun hit the beer urine just right and something oh that's weird super weird okay well we don't have beers in New Zealand so we're good I know right um this is a pretty cool story uh, someone's sort of doing some pretty cool stuff a Danish artist was commissioned by a museum to recreate some work he had earlier made where he used actual cash in the piece but when it came to displaying the actual new work so basically he was like they are like hey you know Bex you had this old work. Uh, do you want to redo it again? Do you want to do it again? Or kind of like an update, right? 
And in the actual work, he used real money, right? So, okay, so he had real money on it. So the new display also had new money and they were commissioned by this museum. But when he came to turn up to the museum with his new work that had been commissioned to do, he just had two blank canvases. <laughs> he, they gave him something like, it was like 80, 86,000 other dollars or euros. I can't remember which. Um, so he just sent up with two blank canvases and said, and this is the name of the work, take the money and run. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so the initial work uh, that he that he created was called, there were two, two pieces, an average Danish income <laughs> and an average Austrian income. Maybe these two blank canvases are some sort of yeah, commentary of what's gonna going say, on. Yeah, I was going to say, very relevant. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty clever, eh? But I actually, like, here's a follow-up because I actually I did a bit more research on something. Oh, that's pretty interesting. So part of the money was to go into that work but he was supposed he's supposed to refund that right so he will be refunding part of that but he will be keeping the rest of it i was it. gonna say where did the money go to <laughs> he took it <laughs> on the run. so basically <laughs> so basically he'll give back yeah he'll give back the money that was supposed to go into the actual art but he'll keep his commission even though he didn't do anything let's move on shall we yeah so we have peter wilson on today so Peter Wilson is part of the DPRK Society, which stands for Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which we often call North Korea. So this society aims to build diplomatic, cultural and economic ties with the North Korean government and New Zealand government. It was established in 1972 and has been on multiple humanitarian missions and hosted North Korean guests here in New Zealand. Yeah, so Peter is a secretary of the DPRK Society, and um, he was actually on my old podcast. This is the, the second time now I think it's happened, but uh, the pod, my old podcast is called Chewing the Fat with Mike. And I hosted Peter, and we went on to a lot of detail about the history of society in North Korea and the sort of general geopolitics of it all. And he kind of he talks about like how he came to, to advocate for North Korea and a whole bunch of other things, but for the purposes of today, we're kind of speaking more to topical relevant issues kind of more recently so if you want to go back and have a listen to to um sort of that stuff you can just google it it's everywhere just join the fact with mike is the name of the podcast and it and it'll just sort of like catch you up with what we're talking about today let's get into it let's welcome to the show peter thank you my pleasure so, in a nutshell, the aim of your society is to increase awareness, understanding, and contact between the people of New Zealand and the people of Democratic People's Republic of Korea or North Korea. What, in general terms, do you guys do? Well, we maintain a close relationship with our sister society in uh, Pyongyang. And over the years, we've done a lot of projects with them. Um, in North Korea and brought people down here, exchanged visits and so forth. And we also maintain a close relationship or liaison with the um, North Korean embassy, which covers New Zealand. That's based in Jakarta. Um, that about sums it up, I think. Mm. Why North Korea, Peter? What got you passionate and interested in this part of the world? Ah, <laughs> that's a good question. Well, I spent my whole life, I mean, I'm retired now, but I spent my whole life working in Asia. I worked in 21 different countries. I worked in all the really poor areas and all the trouble spots. I've worked in Kashmir, um, all Pakistan, Sri Lanka, 
Burma or Myanmar now, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Bougainville, East Timor, um, pretty well anywhere where there's been trouble the last 50 years in Asia, I've been there. And that led me to North Korea in 1997 at the height of their food um, crisis. I was an agriculturalist and I went there first. Actually, I was here at this time, September, 24 years ago. <laughs> we had about a month there. I was working for the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And we worked with the Ministry of Agriculture people there on a, I think it was a 37 or $39 million uh, project for increasing food production. And I had, um, it was quite interesting really, I had small animals. So I was responsible for working with the Ministry of Agriculture people on, on $13 million worth of um, project and it was um all the small animals the ones that we know like sheep and goats but it was also rabbits and geese and ducks as well as poultry so it was really quite fascinating and since then i've just well got more and more involved and in retirement i still keep involved because i consider that really it's the uh, it's the worst threat to peace in, in, the, in our whole Asian Pacific region. We hear a lot about China, but in actual fact, that war could blow up. We could be at war, you know, it could ignite, and the Korean Peninsula could be at war again at any time. So, Peter, from 1997 through to, through to today, We've had, I don't know, there's been yes. quite a bit of uh, difference, I guess, change of leadership. Yes. Um, we've also had, amazingly, the uh, ex-president now of the States going and hanging out with uh, Kim Jong-un. Do you see sort of, a, have you seen a change over the past sort of 24 years, as you mentioned, and particularly when it came to Donald Trump and his meeting with, with Kim Jong-un, do you think that was successful? Do you think that worked? <laughs> well, the United States really wants to maintain the status quo on the Korean Peninsula. They're not interested in the Korean people, south or north. What they're interested in is maintaining uh, military bases close to China. They're only interested in China. And so they don't like to say, you know, we're gonna, we, we've got bases here right close to China. And they use the myth, really, of an aggressive North Korea to justify their military bases there. So the establishment in the states, doesn't matter whether it's Democratic or, or Republican, they want the status quo maintained. Along comes Donald Trump, and it really ate him up that Barack Obama was given a Nobel Peace Prize because he made beautiful speeches. He actually did nothing. So Trump thought that if he actually accomplished something in Korea, he'd get a Nobel Peace Prize for actually doing something. <laughs> and that would be one up on Obama. So that really was his motivation. So he didn't listen to all these advisors or anything. He did build up a relationship with Kim Jong-un um, but at the last minute in that last summit in Hanoi, the establishment took over. 
Um, like what happened there the night before Kim Jong-un and Trump had an, had dinner together just with interpreters and they were there for a, a one or two hours and they had come to an agreement. But when it came to this, the actual formal meeting the next day, um, the establishment in the form of John Bolton and Mike Pompeo added extra things into the mix and the North Koreans said, no, this is not what we'd agreed upon and they walked out. So Trump did not achieve what, what he, he set out to do, but that's really what happened. Do you think that the Koreans, the North Koreans, saw that those summits as successful? Who, who got out of it more, I guess? Like, who, 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 who got, who got more out of those summits? Um, no, no, they're really disappointed that nothing came of it. And it's the same with, they had two summits, I mean, they've had a lot of meetings with the North, with the, their South Korean counterparts, and there's been one, two, three, four, five summit meetings between South and North. And actually, South Korea and North Korea have all agreed have agreed on on how on the the way forward and how they can work together. Um, and they've had lots of working party, you know, working level officials meeting. You name it, whatever sector, fisheries, forestries, tourism, education, everything. So the two Koreas know how they would proceed if peace actually was declared. And as far as the North Koreans are concerned, they're ready to roll. Mm. But um, pressure from Washington has not allowed President Moon and South Korea to proceed so currently the North Koreans are really brassed off. They're really disappointed because they felt that they might have got somewhere with Trump that was torpedoed. They felt that they could get somewhere with South Korea, but under pressure from Washington, South Korea's backed off and not going ahead. So at the moment, they're highly, highly brassed off, very, very disappointed. They put a lot in, you know, they invested a lot into all of those meetings in 2018 with Trump and Moon, but come to nothing. Mm-hmm. We want to touch on North Korea's political engagement with other countries. According to Human Rights Watch, um, despite the impacts of economic sanctions and, of course, COVID-19, and there was some pretty severe flooding last year, North Korea continues to reject international diplomatic engagement and offers of international aid. If they're wanting to kind of re-engage politically and economically, why do you think they reject these offers? Well, there's two things, I think. I mean, the COVID is there. Um, They've probably taken a harder line than any other country on COVID. They were the first country to lock down. They actually sealed their borders on the 21st of January, or it might have been the 22nd of January 2020. No other country had done anything like that. They cut all planes, trains, buses, everything, sealed their border. And there's been very little going in since then, um, just minimal number of trucks with supplies. So there's that aspect of cutting things off and um, they're scared of, and I think they've probably been successful. If they've had any cases at all, they've been absolutely minimal. They're still reporting every month to WHO that they haven't had a case. So there's that aspect. 
But the other aspect is that they just feel so brassed off and let down by what happened in 2018 that, um, in my opinion anyway, they've kind of turned in on themselves in despair and said, well, nobody else in the world is going to help us and um, we've just got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, forget about the rest of the world and just do the best we can. Do it alone. Right, yeah. And and before you were mentioning, Peter, that's um, just how the media has portrayed North Korea, that it <laughs> can be uh, misleading at times or focus on quite negative depictions of them. And, and you mentioned as well that, in fact, um, Kim Jong-un is wanting to really try and pursue some peaceful relations with other nations. In what ways is he and the government trying to achieve peace at the moment? The only thing that they've been doing, which is out of the public eye really, is there's a network, like we're the NZDPRK Society, right? Around the world, there are we got a lot of sister societies, friendship societies, and so forth. Most of them are there; they're not very active. We've been told that New Zealand society is the most active. It might be true. I think it may be actually. Um, Australia is quite active. Anyway, what they have been doing uh, over the last year is sort of waking up all these sleeping societies all around the world and getting them together. And they're trying, they're trying to sort of mobilise um, wider support by activating all of these um, latent <laughs> friendship societies around the globe. That's the only thing that I can... S- yeah, th- so they're trying to do that f- sort of organising committees and all sorts of things. I don't know that that's going to, it might activate, it might actually mean that some of the other societies will will, will um, publicise the situation and they might get something out of that. Um, the other thing I would say is if you've, I don't know whether you've been monitoring what's been happening this week in with the General Assembly in um, New York, um, and there have also been some meetings in Geneva And in both of these places, the North Korean um, delegates have stood up and said that they're quite, they don't know why they're being criticized because they've developed a nuclear deterrent, because that's quite within their rights. Every country has the right to develop its own defense. And um, they wouldn't have to do this if there were no hostilities from the United States. And so they've been very strongly stating that the reason why there's problems, trouble on the Korean Peninsula is because the United States is hostile to them. And that if if there was a cessation of the hostilities, they wouldn't need their nuclear armaments and everybody could live in peace. So they've been pushing that line very much just over the last week in public. Is it, is it kind of like this thing where it like catch me into is like you you sort of stop developing your military and your sort of I don't know arsenal of sort of weapons or whatever and before you do that like I don't know maybe you guys do that then we'll stop doing it this sort of thing and then it's like well nobody's actually going to achieve anything is that sort of what's going on here? Well, 
Let me tell you, I just forget what year it was that uh, Barack Obama was standing for his electioneering for his second term. And they wrote to him back then, and they said that if the United States would normalise relations with them, uh, declare an end to the war, guarantee their sovereignty, lift lift all sanctions, and then the problematical one, withdraw their troops from the Korean Peninsula, North Korea would, and the exact words were, dissemble our Korean assets and give them to a mutually agreed upon third party. Well, the American, Barack Obama, the Americans never acknowledged, let alone answered that. Now, I was in Jakarta and had a four-hour session with the North Korean ambassador um, in June 2019, so it's just over two years ago, and I put it to him, is that your, still your position? And he said, yes, it is. One of the things, I mean, just to sort of go back to, I mean, we were talking about this before in the last pod, podcast that we did, but it was about these, I mean, and you alluded to it before about um, North Korea being sort of a pawn between America and China. Essentially, I mean, really not much is going to sort of happen. But I, the question, I guess, that I've got is that, you know, like Kim Jong-un is basically going to keep expanding the country's nuclear arsenal as sort of military presence, um, despite these sort of threats in terms of economic sanctions, et cetera, from the, from the UN. Like, what do you think, like, just sort of, deviating a little bit from the sort of geopolitical sort of aspect of it but how do you think that affects the people though like these sanctions are going to hit north korean people pretty tough what what's the sort of what's the effect on the people well it is hurting um even though they've got, for example even though they've got very sophisticated um factories capable of producing all sorts of medicines and drugs, um, they can't because they, although they can manufacture um, a wide variety of drugs and medicines and things, they still need some raw supplies from outside, some ingredients from outside, and the sanctions prevent them getting them. So in the health sector, there's no doubt about it, um, the sanctions do hurt them because they've got oodles of doctors, really well-trained medical people, but they don't have um, medicine. So that, that does affect them. Mm. Um, in looking at it another way, um, I mean, the media, people quite often, you, you read that... Um, they spend so much money on their nuclear development that they starve their own people. Well, this is not really true because in actual fact, since about 2015, probably 50% of the army has been diverted from military matters to working as, as builders. And it's actually, I mean, experts say that actually it's been cheaper for them to develop their nuclear weapons than to maintain a 1.2 million standing army with all the modern equipment and everything and that they need. So it's actually 
cheaper to develop a nuclear uh, deterrent than it is to maintain um, a fully equipped army. And I think that at least 50%, they, they've admitted to 30% of the army uh, have been building um, hydroelectric dams, apartment blocks, all sorts of infrastructure. So you could argue that <laughs> infrastructurally, they've actually benefited from um, doing their nuclear development because it's freed up their labor. And when I put this to a high official in about 2016 in Pyongyang, he just said, he nodded his head. He said, yes. He said, since we've got our nuclear deterrent, we can use our manpower more productively. It's interesting, eh? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Infrastructure aside, though, Peter, like I hear what you're saying there, but do you think that the fact that um, North Korea is going to continue to expand their arsenal, which um, means that there's going to be further economic sanctions, that actually creates a gap between the people of North Korea and the wider world? Like they don't have access to um, other resources, information, interaction internationally because of these um, sanctions. Do you think that has an impact on the people? Um, I'm not sure about that. They they know more about the rest of the world than they used to. When I went there first, 24 years ago, there was no international news on their TV, for example. Um, now there is international news every night. It's two, often two or three days late, and I, I, I wouldn't say you know it's not 100% comprehensive. But all the main things that are going on in the world, they are aware of these days. Um, okay. And just to pivot slightly, I want to talk about unification. Um, if, and I'm not sure if this is your end goal, but it's something that I've kind of picked up from um, some of your writings that I've read. If unification oh. of <laughs> North and South Korea is is the end goal? How do you think we can get there? Because it seems like there are still quite um, two sets of competing political ideas between the North and the South. Well, if we go back to 1972, um, they got a bit of a shock when Nixon went to China and did a deal with the Chinese. And um, they immediately thought about it and decided that if there was an outbreak of war again, they couldn't necessarily um, rely on support from the Chinese. So later that year, they proposed talks with South Korea and the head of the South Korean CIA, whatever that's called, went up to Pyongyang and held several days of discussions with his counterpart. And they, they signed a document, I've forgotten what it was called at the time, um, but a joint declaration and in that, they enunciated three principles. And the first one was that we can live with each other's, or that we, we as Koreans, without any foreign input, can solve um, the Korean war issue. We don't need foreigners. We can sort it ourselves. The second one was that we can respect each other's ideology. Um, and the third one was that um, they could work together. So subsequently, they met again. Oh, I'll tell you what, it was very interesting. Nothing happened from that. 
there were a few talks, but nothing actually happened. So a little known fact is that in 1974, they actually wrote to the President of the United States, who was President Ford at the time, and they asked for negotiations for, for a peace treaty and the end of the war. That was never acknowledged and never answered. Um, so then there were more talks with the South Koreans, I think in 1988, 1991. Those were all at senior official levels. And at the end of that time, at the end of each of those two meetings, there were joint declarations which built on those three principles that they had enunciated back in 72. And then they had their first summit in 2000. There was another one in 2007. And then there were three in um, 2018. And after each of all of those, um, there have been a, a jointly signed document which has built on those three principles. And they are in agreement that if a peace could be arrived at, which was internationally recognised and adhered to by the Americans, um, they would work together in a confederation mm. And their model is the EU, where there's all of these um, separate nation states, mm. but they work together on so many things. And what they say is that that they, that would then give, you know, they'd be working together on their industries, education, everything. And that would then give them time to figure out how they could integrate the two societies, right. they, they both, they do want to do it. And they've, they've mapped out the roadway, you know, as to how they can do it. But really the problem is Washington because Washington doesn't want it to happen. Right. Coming back to this idea around ideology, which aspects of North Korean government and ideology would you say you agree with and, and what would you say that you, you don't quite agree with? <laughs> uh, well, they're very, very, in, they're very committed to a socialist system. And I've talked with them about it and said, well, you can go on the Chinese model. And they said, no, it's not good enough. It's, it hasn't worked because the people in the cities are rich and the people in the country are still poor. And I said, well, what about the Vietnamese model? And they said, well, let's, that's just the same, and, and but it's more corrupt. So they are very committed to a sort of socialist system. But having said that, the changes that have occurred in that country over the last almost quarter of a century that I've been watching it are quite remarkable because they've marketized a lot of things. They've changed dramatically how they're operating in the country. Um, like my window is the agriculture. When I went there in 97, 100% of all food was supplied to every family by the state. But today, some people say 70%, I don't think it's 70%, but certainly more than 50% of food is bought in shops and markets. So that's an indication of how they've changed and what, what they tell me is that they're changing so that when peace comes, they can integrate well with the rest of the world. 
Um, what do I not agree with? I think that they are a bit lavish. It's not ideology. I think that they, um, they I've come to realise they like, when they do something, they like to do it well. So when they build buildings, they, you know, I think they probably spend a lot more money and make them much fancier than they really need to be. And some of that money, in my thinking, could, could go to the health sector or something. Um, right. Would you call Kim Jong-un a socialist? Oh, yes, he's committed. Uh, 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 oh, definitely, yeah. And he's not the dictator that, he, he's, that the world portrays him to be. You know, Korean, Korea is a very Confucian society and age it, it counts for a lot. So, I mean, ask yourself, he was about a, what, 25-year-old boy suddenly made dictator. Yeah? All those old men, are they going to? No. Mm. He, he, okay, he was born in the Kim family. He wasn't trained for the job, but he was just thrust into it when his old man died. Um, but he does what he is told. Mm. And he's a very good performer, very good performer. Mm. He, do, he does what he's been assigned to do mm. excellently. But he, and I wouldn't say that he has no power. There, there are a few things that probably he, he can say, do this and it's done. But on all the essential things and all the negotiations with um, Moon and Trump and uh, all the geopolitics, he only says really what he's told to say. Um, and the power has been in the military, but today it's more in the party. So, Peter, just uh, moving on a little bit, I want to talk about your... Um... You're, you're running with the law last year. <laughs> um, oh, yes. I'll, I'll, just, yeah. uh, I'll just give the listeners a little bit of background. Um, right. Basically, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but from what I read, uh, you were giving cash donations to the uh, Red Cross North Korea sort of branch, and that went yes. against uh, sanctions that the government has against the uh, against North Korea from the United Nations, and essentially that it was you you were sending money to the Red Cross in order to help out uh, for humanitarian reasons for COVID, but the government saw that as sending cash rather than actual goods. So had you have sent, for example, whatever, whatever, like I don't know, like masks or something like that, that'd have been okay. Because you sent cash, the government saw that as a breach of the sanctions. Um, What's the story? Like, tell us, tell us what happened and, and the latest on, on what's going on with that. Well, the thing is that back in 2016, the United States kind of tricked Russia and China into agreeing with them that sanctions should go onto North Korea. And so the United Nations has allowed itself to be used, really misused, to become a, <laughs> a branch of American foreign policy. Um, and so in the light of that, New Zealand, which prides itself as a small country in being good multilateralist, um, passed the 2007 North, um, North Korea sanctions regulations. So in March, in January, um, as I mentioned before, North Korea locked its borders. And in February, they asked all the friendship societies around the world, if they, we, we could help with supplies related to um, controlling the COVID. 
so we sent two thousand us dollars and that was used by the red cross in conjunction with my counterpart they went and bought ppe gear and it was given to the border quarantine workers on the border who didn't have any ppe gear for the trucks coming through from china so MFAT reckoned that this contravened the New Zealand regulations and put the and and approached the financial intelligence unit of the New Zealand police, who asked them for more evidence. And MFAT didn't have any, so they thought the only thing they can do is to come and go through my office. <laughs> they raided and, your house, right? and uh, take all, find what evidence they could hear that we had broken the sanctions, you see. So they came here for two hours and they went through my office and they walked out with my laptop and computer and um, my laptop and my phone and a big pile of documents. And searched and searched and, and tried to figure out how we'd broken the sanctions. And I, I, I don't know whether they decided that they... I think they did. Um, well, they they decided they could prosecute us. Mm. Just what that was, I don't know. But it went up to Crown Law, and Crown Law said, "Well, I, I refused to sanction it. Like they couldn't issue a prosecution or charges without approval of Crown Law." And Crown Law, I think, probably said, you don't have a leg to stand on. It's stupid. Forget it. So they wrote a letter to us saying, you were lucky you weren't prosecuted. And that was the end of the matter. And they left you alone. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Pretty funny. But it's almost as if MFAT thinks that North Korea is an enemy and I'm an agent. <laughs> I'm an enemy <laughs> agent. <laughs> And all we did was give some money to the Red Cross, for goodness sake. <laughs> and the Red Cross in North Korea is just like the Red Cross here. Right. They've got thousands of volunteers that work every week, you know. Um, they've probably got op shops, I don't know. But, um, yeah, yeah. It, the whole thing was crazy. So talking about MFAT and New Zealand foreign policy, we read your uh, recent correspondence with the current Minister for Foreign Affairs. Oh, uh -huh. uh, yeah. And you're, so you're advocating that New Zealand should reset our diplomatic settings yes. with North Korea, um, to which I yeah. saw Mahu to reply saying that basically they're following the UN protocol, um, which is that if North Korea abided by the UN Security Council resolutions, then we would look at resetting our diplomatic settings. Has there been any movement on this and, and what's going no. on now? What's going no, on no, no. I went down to Wellington. Uh, I went down to Wellington just before lockdown. In fact, I had to come home in a hurry quick quickly because lockdown was it but i confronted mfat over the whole thing and um they're adamant that they did the right thing putting the police onto me um <laughs> over so little money um the problem is that the people in mfat just follow what the united states wants They've got their head in the sand. Um, they don't recognise that if war broke out, 38% of our trade, you know, is Northeast Asia. Now, COVID has disrupted supply lines. That one 
ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal disrupted world supply lines. If war broke out in Korea again, which it could by accident, nobody wants it, but it could happen. Our New Zealand economy would take a real dive because we would lose 38% of our total trade with China, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan. It would stop dead. Nobody in Wellington's thinking about this. Nobody's doing anything about it. And what we're saying is the two Koreas have agreed on a roadmap out of this whole thing, and New Zealand should work with the two Koreas and help them achieve it. Because it's, apart from the humanitarian issue of 10 million families separated and the strife and trauma to the Korean nation, um, it's in our own interest because so much of our trade, our economy is dependent on that part of the world. But they don't do it. Nobody's doing anything. They don't do anything, think about it at all. They're just blindly following Washington. And it's crazy. Right. P part of the UN Security Council's stance on it, I guess, comes from some of the human rights abuses that have been reported that are going on in North Korea. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think that um, we have normal relations with Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. They are all communist or ex-communist countries. I have worked and know those countries, worked in and know those countries very well. Collectively, I've spent years of my life in those countries. I'll tell you what, the prison systems there would be no, would be, I mean, we hear it a lot. The media tells us about the, the terrible prisons and work camps and so forth in North Korea. The situation in Cambodia and Laos and the prisons there would be just as bad, if not worse, than North Korea. So it's a selective um, criticism that is made. Um, interestingly, the number of people in prison, work camps, whatever, in North Korea has been consistently dropping every year since the mm, uh, mid-90s. Um, there's a grain of truth in everything that you read about North Korea, but it tends to be exaggerated and it tends to be always negative rather than objective. What's, what should the junior... So sort of thinking about it, what should the New Zealand government do in order to get better outcomes for the North Korean situation? And I guess better better outcomes, I mean, what would a better outcome be as well? So, you know, how what, what should we do moving forward as in the news? I mean, I know well, that you're saying reset diplomatic uh, settings and stuff like that, but what's some further things that we could be doing? Well, I think that um, it was very interesting what happened when Helen Clark government in 2001 established full diplomatic relations with North Korea. So for the first time, there was dialogue. And through those years, the, um, the New Zealand ambassador went to North Korea, accompanied by two or three people from Wellington, one, two, and sometimes three times a year. So for the first time, the MFAT people were hearing and taught what the North Koreans were saying. So by about 2007, 
um, they were beginning to understand and some of them were beginning to empathize with the predicament of North Korea. And we actually got to the stage in, 19, in 2007 where there was a proposal from MFAT that we have what they call a track two meeting. And we, we helped them do a costing to bring three or four North Korean officials down to Wellington and they'd have what they call a track two meeting, which is off the record. In other words, you sit around the table and talk quite frankly, but it's all off the record. Nothing's recorded and nothing would be um, sort of said outside. But what it means, it allows the two parties to have a full and frank understanding of both sides of the, of the issue. So we actually got, the MFAT actually got to the point of saying it'd be a good idea to bring some people down here and just listen to them and have a good talk and try and understand the situation properly. And then we can decide how we might, you know, deal with it. But then Labor got voted out, National came in and McCulley shut the whole thing down and he closed diplomatic relations. There's been no diplomatic contact between New Zealand and North Korea now for six years. Which New Zealand politician of the last two decades would you say is most similar to Kim Jong-un? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's, who's really good at doing what they're told? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, okay. One more, one more, one more question, Peter. Um, should Donald Trump get the Nobel Peace Prize for his attempt at normalizing relations between <laughs> South Korea, uh, sorry, North Korea and America. Well, he, he did do, give it a go, but I don't think so. No. <laughs> it's a pity, actually, that um, he didn't pull it off. I, I would be, if today he had the Nobel Peace Prize and there was actually peace, I think we'd all be very, very happy. He got close to it, but he wasn't smart enough, really, to at the last minute to. Um, sort of sidestep the pressure from his officials it was a shame for sure do you want to ask anything else thanks peter that's a really interesting um uh chat there uh where do we go to check out more of the stuff for the dprk society because do you have a website well i think it's in transition at the moment we had an old website and i think it's being upgraded at the moment there's not much on the net just at the moment i don't think although we do have a facebook and a twitter and we put um yeah selected items from what's going on around the you know on the korean situation on almost daily basis on the facebook and the twitter cool thank you so much peter cheers peter my pleasure. Nice to see you again, Mike. How many years was that? About six, I think. Wow, six years. Yeah, about oh, five, wow. five, at least, I think five or six years. It's been a little while. Yeah, cool. Right, nice to see you again. Bex, I wanted to ask you what you, you asked them some really good questions about sort of the humanitarian crisis over there, because one of the things that I um, find interesting about the DPRK society was... I mean, there is, like, a humanitarian crisis, I'm sure. Um, the thing about it, there's not a lot of information that comes out about it, and it's really interesting to see what Peter's thoughts on that were. Yeah, and, and you saw there I was trying to push him at the end there to get an understanding of how he can, or whether he even acknowledges that there are still human rights abuses going on in North Korea, and mm. if he understands that that's why there are these sanctions in place. 
aside from the expansion of their nuclear capabilities, it's also that um, they still have people in prison, political prisoners and so forth. And I didn't really feel like that was acknowledged um, instead of compared to other places who do the same thing. But just because one country does it, it doesn't make it right for North Korea. Yeah, I, I think there's a really interesting thing going on. It's, how to put it, like you kind of look at North Korea in like different kind of levels. If you look at it from just a political level, it's sort of really big sort of geopolitical stuff like that. It's a quite a different set of circumstances than looking at the people. And, and you know, like you said, like the, the millions of people who are in poverty and stuff like that. And I think we often forget about those people there are 20 some million North Koreans who basically live in what is essentially an open air. It's like a prison. Now I was reading the other day that in order to leave the city, you need like travel documents and stuff like that. So it's pretty tough. eh? Like, Mm. I don't know. And another thing as well is like, it was really cool to get, um, Peter's take on the Donald Trump thing, (laughs) because when he was doing all that stuff, I was like, this is just a, it's just a circus. Yeah. Um, and it makes a good television, which it did. It did. I mean, I watched it mm. or parts of it or the highlights or whatever. I mean, what, what, what was your take mm, on that? Mm, I thought that was really interesting. And, and it was, and I wanted to know what did the people think about it? What did North Korean people think about it? And, and it's not only that, but also, you know, Peter's thoughts around unification. I always want to go back to the people that it impacts the most and wonder what are they actually thinking and, and what would, like, what would their concerns be around that? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I know, it's a tough one. I think, um, yeah, I, I, the last time I did the pod with Peter, I got a, a few people saying, you let him off the hook. Right. Um, I don't know how this one will go in terms of mm. feedback. Uh, I think it's a fair point, although I would also say that it's not really my point. It's not adversarial sort of like conversation. Yeah. It's actually about just hearing what, the, what, and, 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 and see what they're saying, you know, like you put like pushing them a little bit on, or just asking, I guess, around mm. the humanitarian crisis, mm. but it's not really, I don't know. We'll see yeah, how it goes. I mean, it's like other guests, you know, previous guests that we've had on the show, we're not here to um, condemn them or judge them, but it doesn't mean that we're condoning what they do either. We're, yeah. we're kind of just trying to provide a space to hear people out and ask some questions. And, and often it's through their own answers and people can make up their own minds. Mm. That's right. And I mean, he's not a crazy guy. No. He's, 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 a, he's a humanitarian worker who really, yeah. who really cares about the North Korean situation. Yeah, he's really, really passionate about, you know, the people there and, and what's going on. And, and that definitely came through. Nice to see the little North Korean flag in the background too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever he has an, uh, an interview, he just pops it out. You know? Yeah, I love that. That's yeah, pretty sweet. Um, great podcast. Thanks for listening. Next week, guys. Bye-bye. Kia ora. 